morning. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful that you have grace, and it's boundless, it's infinite, it's limitless, and it gives us so much hope today. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this morning. Thank you for the celebration that we've had. And Lord, now we celebrate even more as we turn our attention towards your word. Lord, we want to we learn from you this morning. We want you to, to speak to us and to speak to the very deepest parts of who we are. Change us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. like to use these opportunities to get to know you a little bit better. Since I don't preach regularly, I think it's a good idea for you to know who I am and maybe uh, laugh at me a little bit. It's fine. I do. Uh, okay, so this morning, the story I want to tell you starts in high school, but it actually starts, I guess, a little bit before that because, see, when I was in third grade, I started to become homeschooled. And uh, <clears throat> there are two types of homeschoolers in the world, and this is, I'm, I'm in the us group, okay? So if you're a homeschooler in this crowd, I'm not judging you, all right? Been there. Uh, <clears throat> there are two types of homeschoolers. There's like the really, really well-adjusted ones, the ones that are like funny and outgoing and like brilliant, like they talk to adults like adults do, uh, and, they, and they can relate to their peers, and they're just like really, really cool and stuff. And then there's like the other category of uh, homeschoolers that are just like, awkward, and uh, maybe like when I was little, I used to tuck my t-shirt into my jeans, and that's cool here, but that was not a thing where I was growing up. That was basically just a big red flag saying, hey, I'm a nerd, and um, so like <clears throat> that's, that's the homeschooler that I was, okay? So I was homeschooled from third grade through eighth grade, okay, and uh, I wanted to become a missionary, in my, my eighth grade summer, you know, going into my eighth grade year, I wanted to become a missionary. And, and my, my mom was like, uh, okay, Adam, you have no idea how to talk to people in English. Why do you want to learn another language? Why do you want to go to another place, like overcome all that cultural stuff when you can't even handle your own culture? And, you know, I was like, mom, that's mean, but true. <laughs> that's true. So... Uh, Ninth grade rolls around, and I enroll in Royal Valley High School, which is a, a small rural school, a lot like Lingle Fort Laramie. I would say it's actually oh, maybe a little smaller. Um, we had 100 kids, K through 12, and we were all in one big building. And we had like seven classrooms. And it, this was like a big year for Royal Valley High School, was the year that I joined, because uh, we had to use what they called satellite buildings. That's a really nice word for modular homes converted into classrooms, okay? And so uh, I, I remember going in and, and uh, oh, one more thing I need to tell you. <laughs> Boy, this is just, it's a confession hour and then, you know, whatever. You guys can absolve me later. Uh, 
when I was homeschooled, I was self-directed, which means that me and my sisters, we basically chose the education path that we wanted to be on. It was kind of like a Montessori school, but not nearly as expensive and not nearly as cool. And the education path that I chose to follow was Super Street Fighter for the Super Nintendo. <laughs> and specifically Ryu, okay? He was my character, and... I challenge any of you to beat me at that game because I spent five years of my adolescent life sharpening the blade, okay? And that was my education. Uh, my mom was just kind of like, okay, you guys take care of yourself. And I'm like, okay, I'll do my homework. And then I just go and play Nintendo all day. And so that's what I did. Like, literally, I didn't do school, basically. Like, I tried to keep up, but the years just kind of stacked up on each other. And so before I knew it, it was ninth grade, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I knew this would be a hurdle, so I had this strategy for the classes that I would go into. I would go into, like, history or, or, or science or English, and as the teacher's, like, explaining things, you know, doing the lecture, I would take on a posture of knowing knowledgeness. I would go like this. And occasionally, when I know it seems like a thoughtful moment, I would touch my thumb to my chin or my nose and say, hmm... That way they would know that I was paying attention and that I, clearly I know what you're talking about. That works great until math class, okay? Uh, which was a, a bit of a difficulty. So I, I, I sat down in this math class and um, the way it worked was it was in one of these uh, extension buildings or modular homes turned into classrooms. And, and so it was this really small room and I was late because I couldn't find anything because this school is huge to my mind. I mean, I went from a school of three to 100, so that was a big deal. And so I, I get into this class late, and, and I open the door, and I, everyone is sitting down, and the only open seat is on the other side of the room, and there's no way to sneak in the back. So I have to take my backpack full of all my books because I can't, I don't know the combination of my locker, and I don't want to ask anybody. So I've got all my books in this backpack, and I'm carrying like another person behind me, and I open the door and like the light and the dust, you know, enters the room and everyone turns to me and they were watching me as I like try to slide by everybody and, you know, I bump a couple desks and hit people with my book bag and it's just like really, really awkward and the last thing I want to do is be noticed at this point and I'm like the star of the show. So I get around and I get into my seat and Mrs. Eisenbarth, uh, my algebra teacher, uh, I noticed in my career that she smiled once. Um, so she, she picks up this stack of papers and she starts handing them out. You know how teachers do? They start over there and they, they pick out five and they hand it down and everybody starts passing things back. And I think, okay, I've been through this. I can do this. That's a syllabus. That just tells me what I need to know and what I need to study and how I need to catch up. So I'm like, whew, all right, made it. So they hand the papers back and finally gets to my row at the end and they hand the stack and finally I get this thing and it's like a book. And instead of a syllabus, it's a test. And I knew I was in trouble when I realized that I had no idea why letters were in math. I mean, the last time, you know, I had done any sort of math was in third grade, and it was like three times three, which is obviously ten. So I, like, would look at this, 
And it's like, where, why are these letters here? Like, quadra what? Like, there's an A, and then there's like a, it looks like a, a Y, but it's got like a loop on the bottom. I don't understand these things. So I start freaking out. Because here I have a test, and it's like, oh my gosh, I am going to be found out. I am going to be known as an idiot. They are going to know that I am stupid and that I, like, I, I couldn't do anything. And so uh, I'm looking at this paper, and I remember this piece of test-taking advice that I had been given, that um, basically you just answer what you can, answer what you know, and then go back and answer the things that you don't know, to the best of your knowledge. So what I did was I reached around my book bag, got out my pencil, I'm white-knuckling this side of the desk, just trying to keep from throwing up or falling over, and I start answering questions I know. So I flip the first page over. Okay, flip the second page over. It was by about the fourth page that I realized, I don't know anything in this. <laughs> At this point, my face is like beet red. All the blood in my body is in my face. Like, it's just like hot. You could cook an egg on it. And I was just like, I, I think I answered like a few things. And this whole time in my mind, there's this little voice that's just screaming, saying, You should quit high school! Move to another country! One that doesn't have math! And I'm like, I'm freaking out. And so, <clears throat> I maybe answered like a few things, like I wrote seven on a couple answers, because I thought seven's probably an answer eventually for something. So I hand it in, and at this point, Honest to goodness, 14 years old, I've got tears streaming down my face. I'm lucky that I'm in the, like, the back of the class and no one can see me. They could probably hear me because it's like tears streaming down my face. And then every once in a while, there's a... You know, I'm, I'm trying to be a man here and it's just not working. And I realize I am going to be found out for the, the fool that I am. There is a standard that I have clearly missed here. So the good news about this story is that it was actually a pretest, okay? Right? And everyone else around me knew that's what this kind of thing is. It's a pretest. Okay, well, we, I don't know anything. And then you turn that in, and at the end of the year, you're like, look how much I've learned. I didn't know that. I wasn't part of this system, and so I missed that, that boat, and, and I was just freaking out. And I was so relieved when I found out, when she finally said, this is a pretest. Uh, don't worry. And everyone in the, the classroom apparently was feeling a little stressed because everybody goes, oh. Like, it was just like, you know, the test anxiety and then you don't have to be afraid anymore. But I have often run into these experiences where who I am encounters an expectation. Who I am encounters some sort of bar. And I brought this to illustrate. Uh, this is a pool cue. It's not a bar. But I'm going to be using it as a bar. Um... In our life, we often have this. Maybe sometimes someone is holding it down low. Maybe sometimes someone is holding it up high. Someone has an expectation for us to get over their system, their rules. Are you going to slide under it? Is that what you're saying? Okay. <laughs> and like give double thumbs up when you're done. It's like, it's like, it's like a boss. Okay, so, but 
expectations are different, and, and people either have them on purpose, like a job interview. Like, you go to a job interview, there's a section clearly stated in the, the posting that says, qualifications, right? You have to have this education, this experience, this sort of thing. This is the bar. You have to get over it. Like, we won't accept anything under here. And that's fine. It's not fine when you discover that in the job interview. Like, that's not fun. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm, thanks for your time. Um, but then there are, like, those are explicit expectations. But then there are sometimes that we run into people in our lives that have implicit expectations. They have expectations of us that they don't necessarily, maybe they're not even aware of. Like, you need to be this kind of person to be my friend. You need, you need to be at least kind of cool and know a few references to be in my social group. You have to be this handsome to be my husband. You have to be this beautiful to be my wife. Um, there's all sorts of expectations that people have of us. And uh, since I'm in a room full of people, I know that uh, we have all felt less than. There have been times in our life where we have felt less than whatever someone is holding us up to. And what I want to do is I want to talk today about that expectation and about what we do when we are less than. Now, you might be um, new to this, uh, the God concept. Like, you may, this might, might be like the one time you go to church this year, and that's cool. I'm really, really glad you're here because this is an opportunity for us to talk about what God does for us. Okay? So I, uh, stay tuned. Stay here. Don't worry. We're not going to, like, sacrifice any chickens or anything. Churches don't do that. Um, but for you, most of us, I recognize most of our faces, we're like church people. And we often have encounters with expectations, right? Maybe we make it super spiritual language here in the church. You know, you have to meet these discipleship guidelines or these goals. Um, but really, most of our expectations are felt from God. We feel like God, I mean, we read passages where God is a judge, where he's a great king, where he has standards. I mean, he tells us what's right. And there are some times where maybe you feel like you have to do X, Y, and Z to have a relationship with God. Maybe you have to fulfill, you know, these minimum requirements. Like, this would be good, but you have to do at least this much to, to, to have a relationship with God. Maybe you feel like uh, you've known God for a while, but, but there was something you did or something you thought or something you said that disqualifies you. That all of a sudden, you are under the bar now, and you have to, like, re-earn God's love for you. And I want to tell you... Um, you're right and you're wrong, okay? So just stay with me, uh, and I'll explain that. But a lot of us have felt that expectation from other people. There's not a person in this room that hasn't disappointed somebody, something I struggle with all the time. And, and hopefully what we're going to talk about today, what Jesus tells us about the nature of the law and, and who he is, will help us to understand how to interact with people when we disappoint them. Okay, so uh, our story is found in Matthew chapter 5. Um, we are covering the Sermon on the Mount. This is, I think, the third in our series. From here on, we're going to go on to some really exciting stuff. Uh, we're going to cover some really uh, very specific things, and it's going to be great. I, I encourage you to be here. Um, previously, we looked at the idea of the Beatitudes, that we are blessed. 
And, and these are kind of like, I feel like these are things that Jesus says, before I start, I want you to hear this. Like he's, he's explaining something. He says, before I get into anything too specific, I want to explain this. And so let's look at, um, uh, it's Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do we have that up here? Great. Okay. So uh, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, or the prophets, excuse me. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, sometimes I do this thing when somebody reads for a long time that I'm just like, I tune out. I'm just kind of scatterbrained. I want to reread something for you, just in case you're like me. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is explicit. Like, Jesus is not mincing words at this point. He's not alluding to things. He's not, uh, like, softening it for us. He's telling us that if you break one of the smallest commandments, uh, you will be called the least in the kingdom of God. And and if you teach people to follow them, then you're going to be the greatest. And, And if you don't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't even get in. That's true. Jesus says, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Who are the scribes and the Pharisees? I want to explain these people to you because a lot of times they're misunderstood. Jesus really doesn't like them sometimes. Like, he argues with them. He calls them things like a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. Like, he's... He's not very nice to them. Sometimes he calls them like a brood of vipers. Not nice words. But these people, uh, probably by the age of 12 or 13, if they're in this track to become a teacher of the law, they will have the entire Old Testament, all three components, they will have the entire Old Testament memorized word for word. Okay, so just for an illustration of that, I want you to look at this book that I'm holding and look how many pages are here. Like, that's a lot. These people are brilliant. Okay? And, and, and it's not just that. So, um, tradition says there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. And these are the laws that the Pharisees and the scribes were in charge of discussing and applying and teaching people how to live out. Okay? And so, they had, let, let's imagine it as a circle. Okay? This is in the law, this is outside of the law. In the law, outside. There's a circle. Now, what these people did was they understood the whole circle. Like, these are not pastor-type people. These are, like, brilliant, like... I'm not saying you're not brilliant. Uh, <laughs> let's just not say that. Um, these are brilliant people that have uh, up and down... Like, the, the closest analogy that I can think of is, is like, lawyers. Like, there's a codex uh, of information that they have to have ready to go right there. 
because it's a legal sort of understanding. And so they have this, this circle of knowledge that this is the law, and this is what you do to stay inside, and this is what you do to stay outside. But the way that they did things was that they said, okay, so this is really, really bad. If we, if we break the law, then this is really, really bad. So what they did was they created another law around the law, basically saying, uh, okay, so we don't want to break this law, so let's make sure that we follow this law so we don't break this law. And then they added another one, and they said, okay, so when you're doing that, you, you don't want to break this law, so you don't break this law, so you don't break this law. Okay? They had a lot of rules. And they knew them well, and they believed well. Like, they, uh, their, their hearts were good. Their, Jesus at no point says that you're like wicked people. They're good people. And in fact, he uses them as the paradigm of perfection. These people, he says, that, that follow the law and the law and the law and like, tell other people how to do it, these people are not good enough. I want you to think about that. Think about the best person you know. Think about the most righteous person you know. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a, an old mentor, maybe it's a friend. Think about the most righteous person you know. Like when, when the going gets tough, they always do the right thing. They are not good enough to enter the kingdom of God. They are not righteous enough to enter the kingdom of God because Jesus says that if you break the smallest part of it, it's blown. Later on, Paul says, you know, if you break one part of the law, you might as well have broken the whole thing. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is impossible. God's law is impossible. It is a standard. It's not, um, it's not this high, and it's not this high. It's, not, it's, it's like, it's higher than I can stand. It's higher than I could, like, hold this and still breathe oxygen. Like, it is infinitely high. Like, I could hang it from the rafters, and it wouldn't be high enough. That's how high and how perfect God's standards are. Now, um, I don't want you to despair. So I thought I would play for you a clip from a movie that I like. It's a movie that was released last year, and it's about uh, a guy named Cooper and a gal named Dr. Brandt and two computers. Okay? And they are across the universe. They went through a wormhole or something. They're across the universe, and they have to get home. Now, they're on this little shuttle down on the planet, and they're coming back up, and their ship that they need to get on to get home again, to live, because they can't live on the shuttle, explodes. Okay? So it explodes, and, and part of it explodes, and so it starts going into this, like, catastrophic spin and the engines are failing, and so it's dropping into the atmosphere of this planet. It's going to burn up any second now. And, and so I want you to watch uh, what happens. And, and please pay attention, even if you can, to the smallest of details, because I'm going to bring it back up. So, Roy, could you play that for me? It's the Interstellar. It is not... Cooper, there's no 
no point in using her fuel Analyze to Analyze the endurance and spin. What are you doing? Docking. Endurance rotation is 67 and 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match on some man up the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No. It's necessary. and sobbing all at the same time. So I don't know about you guys, but like when I watch clips like this and movies like this that have moments like this, as a, as a man entering the middle part of life, my testosterone just boils. Like I am just like, yeah! 
here we go. He said, I don't know if you noticed, but there's this thing where the, one of the computers was like, it's not possible. And he says, no, it's necessary. And it's just like, yeah, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do impossible things because it's necessary and because I'm a man, right? Guys, I mean, do you feel me on that one a little bit, maybe? Braveheart might be it for you. <laughs> I don't know. But I want to deflate that just a little bit with a little bit of hard reality that the way that life works, we are not Cooper. We are not the pilot. We are not the person who says, no, it is necessary. In this analogy, in this illustration, we are the girl. We are Dr. Brandt. We are strapped in. And, and, and we are part of what, what, what's happening. But I don't know if you noticed, but about halfway through that clip, like when they, he was still going in, the G-forces are too much, and she just passes out. She is adding nothing to this mission at all. <laughs> and, but she comes to, and they're safe. No, the truth is that Jesus is the one that accomplishes impossible things for us. Jesus is the one that accomplishes impossible things for us. If God's law is impossible, only God's love could fulfill it. And I want to point out something that oftentimes I miss and I just skim over and I misread and all sorts of things when I read this passage because of the arresting nature of the last part. I read it and it says, Do not think that I have come to establish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to follow them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. That's how I read it. That Jesus is saying, uh, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, you know, the, the Old Testament's not true. I'm here to follow that. I'm just you know, adding to it. Okay, so I assume that he's just maybe one of those people that's just adding again another set of laws to this. He's, he uses a different word. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He has come to actualize what the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, God's law, God's will, what God wants for humanity, what God says, this is the image that I want my humans to reach, the one that's impossible that none of us can do. Jesus says, I'm here to do that. I'm here to fulfill it. It's not going to pass away. I'm here. And so uh, I, what I want to do is I want to read a passage from Isaiah. Wait, can you get that one up? So this is the passage where um, I, the prophet Isaiah, is, this is a, a famous messianic uh, chapter where he's talking about who Jesus is and, and, and he talks about how he was bruised for our transgressions and, and on him were laid the iniquities. And so I want to read this. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Read Yuck. Read sin. Read failure. Read inadequacy. He shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of the many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The Old Testament uh, points to Jesus. And Jesus is actualizing it. The law of God can only be met by a perfect person. And even here, we see the substitutionary part. We see the stand-in part. 
where it says that he will be named with the transgressors. Jesus, who is completely without sin, has never done a wrong thing in his life, is going to be called a sinner. He's going to be called a transgressor. And he's going to bear the sins of many. And he's going to make an intercession for us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's good news for me because I am a transgressor. I am someone that if there is a bar that God's holding, it doesn't seem to matter if it's 10 inches tall or 10 million miles tall. I'm always under it. But Jesus stands in our place and he's named with us with you and with me, in your worst moment, He stands with you so that He can give His righteousness to you. It says, He will bear the sins of many and He will make intercessions for the transgressors. That word intercession is is, uh, famously in church language called standing in the gap. You're interceding on the behalf of someone. It's an advocate. Uh, A a good analogy would be an attorney. uh, Someone that is interceding on the behalf of their client. Someone that's representing them. And that's what Jesus does for us in relation to this perfect law. God's law is infinitely perfect. I don't know if you've ever experienced a moment where you realize how imperfect you are. For me, it's always doing something that I think I'm good at around someone who is actually good at that thing. Like uh, my example earlier was, um, every time I lead worship, when Ty is in the room, I have to go through about 30 seconds of mental gymnastics because it's like, okay, I'm just going to lead worship and I'm just going to, you know, this is about Jesus and it's not about me, it's not about me and my talent, but, you know, I have to overcome that because, you know, he is so good at something that I am not so good at. When you approach someone who is good, it shows you how not good you are. When you approach someone how perfect or who is perfect, it shows you how not perfect you are. And yet Jesus, as far back as the Old Testament, we did a series um, called Jesus in the Old Testament. High concept, I know. That things in the Old Testament that point towards what Jesus did. And so what Jesus says here is so powerful because he says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I will fulfill them. He's not, gonna, he's not going to uh, make a new plan. He's not going to change the plan. He's going to actualize the plan. He is going to be the perfect person to get up and over the bar for us. I have one more verse that I want us to look at. It's in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you could turn there with me. I always have a hard time finding the Peters because they're like nearly at the end, and I always find myself in Revelation, and then it's so crazy that I just read that. I told you it's confession time. I'm just telling you what I'm thinking. Uh, Is it on the screen? Let's just do it on the screen. There it is. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He became a curse for us. All that yuck and inadequacy all that less than, the things that are unspeakable, the things that maybe you have never told anybody, he took those things on himself. And he hung on a cross, a shameful death for you and for me, so that we might not just be considered, meh, okay, you can get in. So that we might be considered righteous. It doesn't say that, so we might die to sin and, and be okay, 
we live to righteousness. So let me uh, explain something to you. Okay, so I have seen this done before with a bar and somebody held it on stage and they said that um, God's law was here and then Jesus came and he brought it down so that anybody could cross. And, And the point was that entrance is not conditional on your abilities. And I feel like I I love that to a point. Because what Jesus actually did was the bar was here. Higher, I mean, obviously. But the bar was here. And Jesus leapt up and over it. And we have like a carabiner and a rope attached to us. And he pulls us along and he, he brings us along. He gives us his righteousness. We have no righteousness apart from him. We have no ability apart from him. He is the one that gets us up and over God's perfect law. God's love is really the only answer to God's perfect law. It's the only fulfillment to God's perfect law. If you want to go your own way, good luck. I don't think it's going to work. So, uh, earlier, I was talking about uh, different groups of people, and I want to talk to people who are maybe on the fence about God or maybe on the fence about Jesus, and, and you're not really sure you're all in, um, you, you've maybe got some questions, that's okay. That's okay to have questions. It's a reasonable decision. Um, but what I, what I would encourage you to do is realize that everybody has expectations of you. It's not just some God off somewhere. There's people in our life right now that have expectations of you, and there are times in our life when we fail those things. But the most important expectation is the one that is set by your maker, whether you believe in him or not. There will be a day where there will be a reckoning. And if you don't take this deal, (laughs) you go with plan A, which is you have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's why I say good luck. So I want to encourage you today, if, you, if you've never made that leap, if you've never said, yeah, Jesus, I want, I want that righteousness that you offer, um, I want to encourage you to do that today. Because you have no idea how relieving it is to know that you don't have to be good enough. <sighs> it's like uh, just a breath of fresh air when you realize, yeah, I'm not good enough, but I don't have to be. Because Jesus was And if you've never crossed over that, I want to encourage you to do that now. Um, And for those of us that have these moments where uh, we feel like we're earning God's love, where we feel like we have to fight, we have to do good things to make sure that God does, in, in fact, secure us eternal life, like, you know, that whole question of, if I did this thing, am I saved anymore? I want to encourage you to stop acting like someone who's still trying to earn God's love. Stop trying to go with plan A. You took plan B. You have the righteousness. God has given it to you. So let's just ask the question, what does it look like for someone to stop trying to earn God's love? and get over the bar and respond to God's love knowing who he is.
Because, see, the thing is, God's law is an expression of who He is. It's the best way to live. And as we go on, as we talk about things that Jesus teaches, we should still do those things. Christians, brothers, sisters, we should still try to follow what God says because it's good for us and it's the way we were made. But you should not do those things because you want to earn God's love or you want to earn His righteousness because He's already given that to you. Let's stop pretending to be Christians and realize on the inside we are. That Jesus has secured for us his righteousness. And so the big difference, I think, between an act of, uh, of, of striving to earn something and, and trying to express love is intent. If you do things, if you do righteous acts, if you, if you love people, if you serve people, if you give money, because you're afraid that God's going to zap you if you don't. Because you're, you want to earn God's righteousness. You want some sort of an exchange. If you're behaving like that, you're still trying to earn God's love. You're still trying to earn that righteousness. And you can't do that. Instead, as people who are given righteousness, as people that have come under the banner of Jesus Christ and, he, and, and we lash ourselves to Him and we say, yes, I'll take your righteousness, we should just respond in love. Serve your neighbors because you love them and you love God. Don't say that thing because you love God. Don't do that thing because you love God, not because you're afraid. And so finally, I want to say one last thing. For those of us here in this room that are dealing with expectations of others, you know, when we, I said that we have that bar and we feel less than, if you are categorizing yourself as less than, if it's just like, I just can't please anybody, is fail, 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 fail. If, if you have lashed yourself to Christ and been given His righteousness, you have pleased and, and met the bar for the most important judge in the entire world. At the end of days, when, when there's a judge and a king in front of us, it's going to be your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, still bearing the marks of His love for you. It's not going to be you. It's not going to be your family. It's not going to be your enemies. It's not going to be your friends. No one else will stand in judgment of you at the end of days except for our great King. And He's the one that has offered us this deal. So join with me as, as I try something new today. I want to use today to love God because I love Him. I choose to, to serve God today because I love Him. As we go on through this series, I want to encourage you, follow the teachings because you love God and you love the life that He bestows upon us. You're not going to earn anything. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your love and I just pray that you would help us. Help out those of us in this room that feel just always so short, so small, so unable to meet expectations. God, I pray that you'd help us to rest in the fact that you gave that to us as a free gift. Jesus, we thank you that your righteousness is, is, is ours. God, we have satisfied your law through faith in Jesus Christ, and I just pray that you would help us to realize that deep down in our, our heart and our guts, Lord, just who we are. And God, I pray that you'd help us to respond in love. Lord, and appreciation. We're not trying to earn anything. Jesus, we just love you so much. 
And we're grateful for what you've done for us, namely getting us up and over that bar, but also giving us new life today. So God, I pray that you'd help us to be a part of that. Lord, as, as we sing this last song and we talk about you being our cornerstone, Jesus, we just pray that we'd build our life on that. Not on our own righteousness, on our own good deeds, but Jesus, that we would build our life on the work that you have done and the work that you're doing. Lord, help us to just strap in and go for the ride. God, we love you in Jesus' name.